Welcome back to Composer Quests. I'm your host in Minneapolis, Charlie McCarran, and in this show I talk with composers, songwriters, producers, and scientists about the creative process of making music. Today we'll hear from Bob McCallum, the man behind the fascinating music evolution project called Darwin Tunes. The intro music you're hearing right now is a collection of offspring from the Darwin Tunes mating game. More on that in a bit. First, some announcements. This episode is brought to you by my generous Patreon patrons and by lynda.com. Lynda is an online learning platform with over 3,000 on-demand video courses to help you improve your creative, technical, and business skills. For a free 10-day trial, go to lynda.com quest. And that's lynda with a Y. Now, a moment to thank my patrons. Thanks to Michael E. Anderson out in Kansas City, Missouri. You're hearing his composition right now called Bad Theology. Check his music out at soundcloud.com slash Michael E. Anderson, and Anderson's with an O. Alexander Gleich is a video game composer out in Leipzig, Germany. Check his music out at william-e.bandcamp.com. And thanks also to my $5 per episode patron, Dan Wheeler. You've heard from Dan in episode 99, where he gave his top 10 favorite composer quest moments. Dan specifically requested that I try out a funk style for his jingle. So, here you go, Dan. Dan Wheeler is the man. He's got funky jams waiting in his hand. He'll take you on a trip to piano land Take a listen once and you'll be a fan A funky Dan Funky Dan Dan Wheeler is the guy He's got jazzy tunes playing in his mind He'll give you just the right beat to unwind Over the past few years, Bob McCallum has been focused on one question. Can music evolve through natural selection? Bob created the Darwin Tunes Project to test that hypothesis, and he's since found that pleasing music can evolve out of randomly generated noise, thanks to thousands of participants in his experiment. In this episode, we'll hear about how Darwin Tunes works, and we'll also hear about Bob's research in the evolution of pop music over the last 50 years. Stick around till the end of the episode to hear me play the Darwin Tunes mating game and create a brand new musical child. Bob, your title is bioinformaticist. That's right. I'm saying that right? Yeah. Uh, What does that mean? What do you do uh, on a day-to-day basis? I'm like a... um computer biologists so there's a lot of data in modern biology dna sequences geographic data population data we just we build databases and websites make sense of it uh, and i i work with mosquitoes so 
we try and uh, make sense of mosquito data. To try and um, figure out how to cure malaria yes. eventually? Yeah, so to uh, understand how mosquitoes transmit malaria and dengue and other, other diseases, and then that should help in the uh, discovery of eradication measures or uh, not really treatment we don't really care about treating mosquitoes <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of your day job but at night you you work on darwin tunes yes i tinker yeah could you explain uh where darwin tunes came from and yeah so back in the early 2000s i i was working in another area of bioinformatics, trying to figure out how proteins fold up. And I've, that's a really difficult problem. That's You solve that problem, you, you get an instant Nobel Prize. And But I, I figured I wasn't smart enough to solve that problem, but that evolution could be. And an evolution obviously produced the natural world around us, but it you can also simulate it in a computer to solve problems. So... You might, people may have heard of genetic algorithms or evolutionary algorithms. So I was trying to harness these evolutionary algorithms to solve this sort of biochemistry problem, how, the, how a chain of amino acids folds up into a, a three-dimensional protein structure. And so I was, I was developing tools for evolving computer code, basically. And then I just I sort of had a brainwave one day. Well, audio is just a large matrix of data and I can evolve code to make audio. So I was just playing around with evolving code to make sounds and then it turned into making short loops of short tunes. And I tinkered and tinkered to make make basically make some code that I ran on my laptop which would it would simulate a, a small population of loops in the computer and it would play them to me. And if I liked them I'd type in a high number and if I didn't like them, I'd type in a low number. After I'd listened to 10 or 20 of those loops, it would take the best scoring, the loops I'd scored highly, and then breed them together, mate, mate them. They'd have sex and have ba make babies, mixing up their... So they have kind of genetic material that gets turned into music in a very simpli like, simplistic way. Like what kind of features would be would turn up in the offspring of these. Yeah, so the genome would say, well, there's there's a bunch of tracks. There's like 11 tracks, 11 layers to the music. The genome would say, well, the first track has this synthesizer sound and then it has a rhythm that's on the third and fourth beats of the bar with certain effects and the other tracks might be melodies or rhythms. They might be samples rather than synthesizers and different effects. So the, the genome describes the code that makes the audio, and then when you mate two individuals together, you mix up that genetic m material. So the offspring sound like a mix of the two parents. So then, on my laptop again, I listen to those children and rate those, and the ones that I rate highly go on and have offspring, the ones I don't rate highly don't. And I maintain a population of a couple of hundred loops. And about sort of 10,000 loops later, you've got really quite okay sounding music that 
still only like four bar loops, but you can stitch them together and make a, make a tune if you like, which I did several times. <laughs> And that was fun, that's a kind of bedroom DJ hobby thing. But I was really keen to see what would happen if I put it out into the wild with just normal people using this tool. Ideally lots of normal people. Because then you might be able to answer the question, what is the perfect piece of music? If everyone is selecting music, maybe they'll converge on the perfect tune. But... um it was difficult to get this tool into the hands or into the ears of enough people, really. I tried several websites, never really took off. And then I started collaborating with Professor Armand Leroy at Imperial College, who um, he had the genius idea to get volunteer students on the biology undergraduate course. They weren't actually volunteers, they were kind of uh, strong-armed into helping us <laughs> do this experiment. And that basically gave us critical mass with 120 students grouped into three cohorts and had three replicates of the experiment plus we could do a press release and say scientists at Imperial College are performing an experiment to discover the perfect pop song or something you know just some something like that to bring in a bit of um, interest from the the blogosphere it really took off there actually it ran for a couple of months we only made the students do a week, like 15 minutes a day, but the uh, our sort of public volunteers went for a couple of months. We had about 7,000 people, and we did about 3,000 generations of, of evolution. And we could then start to answer the question, does pleasing music evolve out of nothing? And we found that it did, but there's, <laughs> there's another trick, which was publishing the uh, the paper of those initial results got us into the real media attention with the BBC and LA Times and so on and then that got us another sort of 10,000 web volunteers uh, and that took the music to a much higher level so if if, if we listen to something like Generation 6000 from the first Darwin Tunes experiment you can hear a really nice melody with a kind of counterpoint accompaniment it's kind of quite quite a complex piece of music it's kind of saccharine and not very challenging but it's it's the sort of tune that you I've hummed to myself walking down the street what did you start with actually we tried to start with as little human designed input or influence so we, we used the, the standard 12 note scale so all the notes produced by this software would would come out of the standard western 12 note scale then these notes were arranged in four bars of 4/4 four, four, with a little bit of groove it used to be called in cubase 
millions of years ago. I don't know what it's called, but you know, not not everything bang on the beat to give a bit of feel. But basically, four four fairly well quantized, and the sound generation was using our own additive synth code, which just added sine waves in various combinations. We didn't use drum samples or well-known instrument samples. We wanted it to sort of organically grow from nothing. If we'd put in drum samples and orchestral and piano samples and so on, it would have become a, a beauty contest for people just choosing the sounds they liked rather than the sort of musical qualities that they liked. So let's say someone was rating these randomized, very basic things. Yeah. So when they choose to rate something high, it'll pick whatever characteristic seems to be most present in that version of theirs and then kind of add it to the whole? Or how, how does that work exactly? So, yeah, so the, the initial population of tunes are, as you say, they're the randomly... It's, they kind of have random DNA, and that that translates into a random piece of music, with you know with rhythm and four four and western tuning. But but it's just a random sequence of bleeps and bloops. But if I select that organism as a good one, it will survive and make offspring. So it will pass its music DNA, its instructions to make the the sound to the next generation. So yes, characteristics of that tune I picked will be passed on so the rhythms or some of the synthesizer settings or the melodies will be passed on to the offspring and it's done with pairs of parents so mother and father loops give birth to multiple daughters I was reading in your paper about your findings and you had mentioned that it was it sounded like music fairly quickly after not that many generations and then kind of leveled off, I guess. Yes, yeah. To cut a long story short, we found that the mixing of the parents' music DNA to make the children, that breaks some things up. And we basically found that anything musical and appealing that was being generated by selection was being destroyed at an equal rate by the random destructive effects of mutation and recombination. So you had a parent with a melody and a bass line, and another parent with a melody and a bass line. Our recombination algorithm would frequently come out with a child with two melodies and a, another child with two bass lines. Hmm. But in nature that doesn't happen. We We make sure we have enough just the right number of eye genes and hair genes and we will have a full complement of genes to do everything. So um, actually there was one detail of the algorithm we hadn't quite got right and we needed to do the recombination in a more biological way to preserve basically so that the children had a the children of melody plus baseline parents each had a melody and a baseline. And so we we actually switched on that feature after the publication for the second round of media volunteer interest and 
that's how we got that really nice melody and the accompaniment. So what sparked your curiosity in doing this evolutionary music project in the first place? Well, it was kind of by accident. I've been a musician, well, I've been a childhood musician. I played the cello up to my late teens. I've always been into electronic music. And I've always been fascinated by evolution and, and simulating that in the computer. So, And I've never been that great a composer either. So I, I did play around with making some electronic music back in the late 90s. I bought myself a, an Akai sampler for like, know the price of a small house <laughs> not quite but and I had a Cubase on an old Mac you know, really ancient stuff and um, I made some tunes I found that I wasn't really going into the the composition with an idea I would just play around with the synths and the sampler until something cool came out that gave me the inspiration to sort of finish a track and so it was a it was kind of like an evolutionary process as well so you, you play around you play around no that's no good that's no good. oh that's quite good i'll keep that for a bit fiddle with that no that's no good okay. so it's a kind of blind sort of random walk through this sonic universe until you find something you like which well it's not darwinian evolution by natural selection when one person just twiddles the knobs on a synthesizer but it's it's the same kind of idea it's there's not that much intelligence involved. <laughs> well, not not in my um, compositions. So I was quite drawn to the idea of aut automatic music composition. I'm particularly interested in how it might be a way of generating completely new genres because there isn't a single human hand on any of the notes or other sound parameters. So, so you can't push it. Well, you can push it in a direction by your, what you select but you've got no real controls, so it's possible that by complete accident something really cool comes up and you you start evolving the music into into a completely new genre. So um, I was um, doing a, a remix competition on the CC Mixter website several years ago and came up with this piece called The, the Chosen Selection, which is pretty mad and pretty... I mean, people did describe it as kind of happy hardcore, so it wasn't completely new, but it was... I've certainly never written a piece of happy hardcore before in my life. So you were just sitting at your laptop you put in a a bunch of samples right and then you were gradually rating them rating the as four bar loop rating the four bar loops made from the samples and some synths uh so I, I chose the tempo and i chose the, some samples to throw in so that the darwin tunes algorithm when we did the experiment with the students and so on that that didn't use samples but it's it's more fun if you do throw in samples you you get somewhere a bit quicker sure yeah so is that where darwin tunes 2.0 
comes in. Yeah. So really, the the Darwin Tunes One experiment was really very successful. If if I'm humming a tune to myself that's been evolved by several thousand people on the internet, I'd say that's a success. But it's also just a few bars of music out of many thousands of hours of effort. And the problem is that all those people only did it because they read about it in in the LA Times or on, heard about it on NPR or BBC. We, we needed media exposure targeted at, at sort of science and crowd science friendly people to think, oh, well, I'll have a go at that. And then they had a go for 10 minutes maybe, which is great. And then they went away. And without another high-impact paper and media exposure, we won't get those users back again. We had loads of great ideas for experiments to do. We can run parallel experiments in China and Japan and and uh, West and South America and see what different kinds of music come out or try it with educated musicians versus non-educated musicians. And, uh, you know, all these ideas, but they'll never happen unless we pay people to sit and click... I like it or I don't like it. But we had visions of lots of people evolving music collaboratively on the internet for fun. Because it should be fun making, exploring whole new, you know... I personally enjoy listening to completely new music almost all the time. I don't... I'm not trying to hear my favourite songs all the time. I like new music. And we figured there would be enough people out there who felt similarly that this exploration of, of new musical space without having to have any you know com- composition and music technology skills would be... We thought that would be appealing. So we tried to design a new version of Darwin Tunes that was just more fun to do. We haven't really talked about Darwin Tunes 1, that, how bad it was. <laughs> <laughs> but but you, had to, you had to open an internet radio stream in, say, iTunes or... Windows Media Player or something, and then you had to kind of minimise that, and then go back to the web page, and then you had to watch the the tune name window in your media player to see which loop you were listening to, and then you had to go back to the web page to to enter your rating for that loop. I mean, people managed it, but it wasn't the sort of smooth, integrated experience that that you expect on web toys these days. Mm-hmm. So we built Darwin Tunes 2 just purely as a mobile and tablet-friendly web application. So could you describe like what the game looks like yeah, to sure. someone playing? Yeah, so, so we also gave up on the idea of trying to simulate sort of Darwinian natural selection-like evolution. And Darwin Tunes 2 is a breeding game. So you choose exactly which two tunes breed together to make baby tunes. They recombine their genetic, you know, their music DNA and make eight offspring. And then you listen to those and you choose the best one. It's a little bit brutal. <laughs> don't recommend, don't try this at home with your own kids. <laughs> but uh, you choose one of the eight offspring that survives as your tune now. It's your, rep- it's your tune. It represents you in the population. Other people will be able to breed with that tune. That's cool. Yeah, I was trying the game out. And it's kind of fun having your own tune that you can download. Yeah. And, you know, it's only four bars, but some of those are really cool. And I was kind of thinking like, oh, this 
this tune has never been made before and will probably not be heard by more than one other person or, you know, a, a few, few other people. people. Yeah, that's right, yeah. So it's constantly moving in some direction or other. And we're, we're current, I'm currently writing writing a paper just to describe this new project. So we have a plot of how the music moves around. We've done some music information retrieval on the tunes in this that have been generated in the game. So it's, oh, I can't remember, about 40,000 tunes in the first eight months or so of the of it being online. And... Um, some of our users are hell-bent on creating anarchy and noise. <laughs> it's, it's an interesting uh, phenomenon going on. Yeah, because the last game I played, I ended up with children who were very noisy. <laughs> and uh, it seemed like totally different than the first time I had tried the game. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah do you notice a shift, like, over a month or so that some things are recognizable but maybe a lot has changed yeah I, I find quite a lot changes um there are some medleys some samples of a few tunes from each month on soundcloud and, and you can hear quite big changes from month to month does darwin tunes 2.0 this breeding game does it work the same way as far as like how the parents combine and then some musical features will be added from both to the children. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's almost exactly the same as, as the original Darwin Tunes experiment. We, we've thrown in samples and like whole orchestra samples, drum samples, a speech synthesizer even, but the genetic processes are essentially the same. Yeah, I was listening to the original Adam and Eve sort of parents' mm -hmm. sounds, and they were surprisingly a lot simpler than I was expecting from, from the kind of sounds that are happening now. From which experiment? From, from the Darwin Tunes 2.0. Okay. Yeah, it seemed like it was very sparse percussion, little hits here and there. The genomes have grown to put more notes into the loop. I mean, if that's what people have selected, that's what survives to the next generation. How would you say that noise plays a factor? Because like, it seems like sometimes you have really pure tone sounds, more like sine waves. <laughs> but then there's like these weird noise samples, but they kind of combine together to create different timbres of music. My colleague Matthias Mauch was keen to add a noise, some noise generation, some noise dirtying into the synth. Uh, yeah, added a, a noising noisif oh, I don't know what to call it. <laughs> <My> <laughs> Noisification. Noisification, yeah. <laughs> and that actually really helped. You need some dirty sounds, I think. <laughs> Definitely. 
But then there's some, you know, lovely kind of oboe samples and stuff in the... It's just... Uh, really, it's, if you think about all the different combinations of sounds that are possible, even if we constrain it to the same tempo of four bars, it's... it's uh, well, it, it is an infinite musical space that can be explored here. And and if we had, you know, a hundred people playing 24-7, it would become even more interesting. I mean, it would move in multiple directions all the time. Because another thing is that players... Well, we, we need to fix this in future versions to make it much more like a, a sort of social network community. So if a group of players really like sort of drum and bass sound, for example, then they would segregate into their own community and, and they could go and do that in semi-isolation from other users who might be into more ambient sounds or... And then the 4-4 the four, four house people could would segregate themselves. And if that... I mean, that can... should be fairly easy to do that automatically. And so... Uh, certainly a vision for the future if if there's any market for this kind of thing <laughs> would be to to make an even friendlier interface you know proper apps on multiple platforms plus a web version and really try and create these communities and somehow the, the real the real challenge is to break beyond you know the four bar loop not be constrained to four four all the time and try to create longer pieces of music but you can't if you think about it if if you're doing this evolutionary music thing the limiting factor there is how long it takes for the human to listen to these loops and if these loops are actually 60 minute symphonies then the process just you know, it'd be way too slow but somehow people do like listening to more than four bars of music <laughs> Yeah. So that's a bit of a challenge for us. We we've got some ideas about making a kind of composition tool that in the background uh has evolutionary a bit like you know garage band you can drag loops around. You can drag stock loops around, but in this tool you'd be dragging loops from the evolutionary algorithm around and making a tune. Cool. We do have again now have an internet radio stream you you can't vote on it or rate the tunes on it but we've used some audio clustering technology to pick some recent loops out of the population and put them into a fairly nice sounding order automatically yeah we'd like to have some parties with it so we, we haven't really got into this there's the algo rave <laughs> movement here in the in the London area I haven't <laughs> Well, we'd like to get yeah. get involved in in some more live kind of things, but th there you have the problem that evolution is slow, and so you can't really get much in a two-hour you know slot in a in a club or a party. You you can't really do much in two hours with evolutionary music. Really, you need two days or two weeks, unless you've got millions of people at home voting and mate breeding and so on. Y you could probably have a live show with with sort of not millions maybe tens of thousands of people working in their bedrooms to produce the uh, material for the live show that would be really cool yeah <laughs> so is elgo rave a thing it's actually? a thing yeah it is a thing 
Oh. I haven't got, <laughs> but I haven't... <laughs> we haven't got involved with it yet. But I think we should try. What is it? It's some sort of club nights where people uh, showcase generative and algorithmic music and I guess it just they geek out with uh, algorithmic music. Cool. So my friend who has studied genetics was wondering uh, about, like, in the Darwin Tunes experiments, the humans are kind of like the natural selectors, the environment. They're the environment, yes. I guess. The, tune, yeah. the tunes have to survive in an environment of human listeners, is, is one way of putting it. Sure. Is there any other kind of environment that you could put the tunes in to have them evolve or do you think it'll mostly just depend on humans we have growing expertise in extracting audio qualities out of the sort of musical and timbral qualities out of audio data and so it would be possible to to run the algorithm without human interaction and then automatically assign high fitness to loops that sounded like Dancing Queen, for example, <laughs> or uh, some Target pop tune. Yeah, we've always thought of doing that. We never actually got around to it. It would end up, I'm pretty sure, sounding you know the right sonic qualities, but there would be no the, the musical qualities wouldn't be there. So the the measures that we have really look at the sub-second time scale and also some chord change information, but not we don't have a computational way to assess the quality of a melody or its emotive qualities. So, yeah. So and other ideas, you know, we, there could be a hybrid approach. There's some automatic rating and some human rating as well, but we don't, so, yeah, we don't want to, well, I don't personally want to, you know, why don't we start with Dancing Queen and see where it goes? I, I'm, I'm, I'm really not interested in throwing in stuff we already know. I, I'm much more in, interested in in watching things emerge from primitive beginnings. Yeah. You also were working on a study on the evolution of American popular music from the past fifty years or so. Uh, which was really interesting to read. So you took, like, what, over 70,000 pop songs from the Billboard Hot 100? Yeah, that's right, from 1960 to 2010, yeah. Yeah, so what was your aim with that study? Right, well, so it kind of ties in with the Darwin Tunes work. Um, I guess we haven't talked about so far, we haven't talked about cultural evolution in general you know does does the music we hear today come from genius human creators alone or does it come from a does the music we hear today arise from a stepwise process a bit like evolution you know taking from composers yes but taking inspiration from earlier pieces of music refining them tweaking them modifying them into new pieces of music and then those being heard by other musicians and composers further down the line and if the likelihood of a piece of music 
influencing a future composer depends on the piece of music's quality and popularity, then we have a kind of evolutionary, so evolution by natural selection like process going on, or mimetic evolution. So a, a typical mimetic evolution example would be jokes. So a joke that you like, you're more likely to remember and tell other people, but you might change some of the details you might forget or change on purpose some of the wording and then you tell it to someone else. And if that joke is even funnier than the one you heard, then even more people will remember it and pass on that version of the joke. We assume similar things happen with music and fashion and all kinds of cultural phenomena. But that's just a feeling. We, we wanted to really test that. We're, we're scientists, we want to test some of these hypotheses. And there are, there are two ways to do this for music. One is to ask, can music evolve under a natural selection-like process? And that's basically the Darwin Tunes 1 experiment. And we sort of showed that it, it can. Doesn't mean it does. So, so the other question is, has it, or does it? Is it happening now, or did it happen in the recent past? And for that, you need to basically go back and look at the fossil record of of music and look for telltale signs of evolution. Now, this paper that's just come out on the the uh, evolution of pop music is is the first step in that direction. We've done a very detailed analysis of the trends observed in music in the last 50 years. We haven't yet answered the question, I mean, it, the music does evolve, but evolve, evolve just means change. The question is, has it evolved by uh, consumer selection? Or we haven't been yet been able to quantify the influence of consumer selection versus composer genius which is, that's the really interesting question. So, for example, do our new styles or new sort of musical motifs or ideas, are they pushed from a very insistent and powerful composer or record label, marketing and so on, or are they pulled, is the audience driving the propagation of, of new styles and or new musical ideas? And so that this new study is, is basically the groundwork for that. But it's come up with some fascinating insights into musical evolution, which until now have typically been um, music journalists and so on have proclaimed what they think were the important revolutions in music. But this study has really, in a completely objective way, has, has isolated, for example, three musical revolutions 1964, 1983, and 1991. And just by looking at the data, you can see which musical features are, appeared and declined at, at those points. So in 64, there was a marked increase in the aggressiveness of the guitars. And, and there's an interesting story there about the, uh, the British invasion, because this is an analysis of the US charts. And at that time, the Beatles and the Stones were were becoming a big thing over here, over there. Well, it depends where you are. And um, but the the data shows that the change was already happening. A, you know, a couple of years before 
So these new sounds were already starting to appear before the Beatles actually and Stones actually released a record in the, or hit the charts in the US. But they, they certainly solidified that revolution, but it was already happening before they came. Mm-hmm. Another thing is that, um, again, this objective analysis is able to give an idea of musical diversity. People often complain that, oh, the charts, they all sound the same these days. But there hasn't really been a decline in musical diversity by a number of measures, um, except perhaps in the mid-80s. The music theory things you found out were interesting too. Like, So you were able to analyze, like, here's the times when songs were mostly using dominant seventh chords, um, like in blues and jazz, but then you kind of noticed that those kind of chords declined over the years. Yes, yeah. Like kind of signaling jazz and blues going out of, out of style. Yes, and the other, the big change was the music with no chords, and uh, that's basically the uh, the rise of hip-hop in the 80s. Oh, yeah. So huh. no, no chords and, and more vocal sounds. And, the, and the, the 80s revolution was driven by the uh, drum machine and, and synth revolution. Yeah. The other one I thought was interesting was the minor seventh chords um, that were appearing from 1967 to 77, uh, which is funk, disco, and soul used a lot of minor seventh chords. So that's just cool that you can analyze all that data for these these hits. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Time to break in with a little promo for lynda.com. Since we're talking about hit songs, I thought I'd share a clip from a Lynda course taught by a hit songwriter, Cliff Goldmacher. His course is all about the do's and don'ts of collaborative songwriting, something Cliff does on a daily basis in Nashville. There's really no reason to say a co-writer's idea is bad or wrong. First of all, this is songwriting, songwriting is art, and art is subjective. And second of all, and this is really, really important, you could crush an admittedly weak idea that was only going to be a stepping stone towards something that was a truly great idea. So here's what I mean by that. I can't tell you the number of times I'm in a collaboration and my co-writer will say something that I know and they ultimately, in the light of day, would know is utterly ridiculous. And the next thing behind it is completely brilliant. And if for whatever reason I had chosen to say, what a a dumb idea, it shuts it down. It shuts it down completely and you never get the brilliant one. So all that to say, don't interrupt the flow. It's all about flow. If you're interested in more videos and courses like this, try out Linda free for 10 days at lynda.com slash quest. That's L-Y-N-D-A. Now back to my talk with Bob McCallum. In my internet stalking of you, I noticed that you are do a lot of photography. Mm-hmm. Um, I do. And I, I just thought it was interesting looking at your photos. And there's a lot of photos that have patterns in them i I don't know if you it seems like maybe that's uh you're very pattern driven yeah it could be so pattern and texture and abstract 
That could be my uh, musical... Uh, I'm certainly into repetitive music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, well, in your electronic music you sent me too is also the kind of minimalist style, repetitive. Yeah. yeah. There's something really satisfying about that for us as humans to en- enjoy patterns like that. Yeah, there's always, it's a, there's always has to be a balance though between just enough repetition but not too much. There's a kind of, you need a good balance of familiarity and predictability with novelty and surprise. And you certainly get that with uh, evolutionary algorithmic music. Are there uh, any things that you think composers could learn from your evolutionary music? I think, um, not learn, but I think it's a... I'm happy for it to be used just as a kind of inspiration generator. So, like I said about when I was making music the the old-fashioned way, I, I didn't really control what was coming out. I was inspired by the sounds that the synth was making or the uh, the sampler and so on were making so i think if composers are happy to let an algorithm that's that's been pushed in a certain direction by real human people on playing our darwin tunes game i'd be honored if they you know just took a few bits of melodies or sampled a few notes here and there to use that would be um that would justify my entire existence. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, on this show, I always have the guest make their own custom intro for the podcast episode. Okay. Uh, so maybe I might ask you to make your own based on some Darwin tunes. Ah, yeah, good idea. Yes. That'd be cool. Because you've obviously been playing the game quite a bit. As Uncool Bob. Mm. Uh, so if people are playing, they can find you and your your sounds. Yeah, if I've been playing in the last few days, yes, I should be there. I have another tradition on the podcast where the previous guest asks a question for my current guest. Mm-hmm. So the last person I had on the podcast, Ian Dickey, asked... If you were to analyze your music, would you notice a pattern in where the climax occurs? And maybe we could expand it too, to like within these four bar phrases, even though they're really short, like, is there a certain point that has a climax, musical climax, I guess? Within the four bars, I'd say that's tricky to, um... Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, um, I mean, if if you look at the in in the Darwin Tunes one experiment, there was definitely a climax for me at least at, at around that six thousand generations point, and then after that, it seemed to lose focus and just not be so good. So, so on the grand scale, on the grand scale, you can see, yeah, yeah I think there's ebb and flow. Um, again, if we'd had, you know. 
thousand people a day doing it for five years, would it have? It's an interesting question. Would there be peaks and troughs, or would it just keep getting better and better and better and better, or just or better and different, and then better and different, and then, or would it go through some troughs of blandness? Or it's an interesting yeah. question. Biological evolution on the whole will will actually sort of slow down if there are no new challenges in the environment it kind of slows down you see you know, coelacanths living for millions of years unchanged while you know humans what? humans have evolved in the past couple of million years so what is that that you just said a, cel- a coelacanth it's a it's a kind of ugly fish that lives at the bottom of the sea oh <laughs> It's a kind of living fossil. If the environment doesn't change, then then the organisms don't really evolve, don't need to change much. Um, they they may drift, you know, they may change slightly, just randomly. But so with musical evolution, you you could expect if the listeners haven't changed the way they think about music, then the music would stop evolving. Hmm. But I think we as you know as music listeners we're always changing every piece of music you listen to changes the way you appreciate the next one so yeah this is a huge question but what do you think the next step in human evolution is what will we be like or have we reached the point of that ugly fish under the ocean where we're going <laughs> to well, we we won't. we've mastered our environment, so we don't need to change or something. I don't know. Well, we've mastered our environment so much that we don't actually. If one human was better than the other at something, if that was the case, the better one doesn't necessarily have more reproductive success. <laughs> yeah. Because we cure disease, you know, we we prolong life by curing diseases and we you know we mess around we don't it's not really natural selection so much anymore because we interfere with reproduction and health and so on so now the big thing will be i guess artificial intelligence and whether we can keep up with it <laughs> but i don't think that has a, <laughs> yeah i don't think that necessarily has a musical angle at, at, right at the moment <laughs> Until computers start appreciating music, too, and then... Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But that's far into the future. Yeah. Uh, Anyways, do you have a question for my next guest? Okay, okay. So a related question to what we've been talking about is if you have a preconception of what you're planning to write... Out of ten pieces, how many turn out that way, and how many are um, the are discarded a, children? Are, yeah, how well? <laughs> how many are a surprise sort of diversion? I'm interested to know how often the creative process changes the original idea beyond recognition. What would you say? to that like if you were doing your own music it, well it certainly happens to me I I've occasionally have this I can sometimes imagine a 
you know, piece of progressive house in my head, but I would never be able to get that. If I could record that from my head into audio, that would be a start, and then painstakingly you could reproduce that music, but it, it stays, the idea for me, the, the, the sound that I imagine in my head stays for such a short period of time, it's almost like a dream, you, you don't really, it's not there long enough to, to, for me to rationalise as a real piece of music, but then I'm not really skilled enough in sound production and composition to get that done quick enough while it's still fresh in my head. Sure. Because for me, music isn't just about a melody. I mean, yes, sure, I could, if I had a melody idea, I could write that down. But it's not, it's, for me, music is much more than melody. It's, it's all about sound and atmosphere and uh, rather than just notes on, on a score. Well, Bob, thanks so much for coming on Composer Quest here. Uh, thanks, Charlie. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. And uh, I'll make sure to have everyone try out darwintunes.org, the game. Brilliant. Thanks. Yeah. Have fun, everyone. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Composer Quest with Bob McCallum. Make sure to visit darwintunes.org to try the game and listen to the musical evolution from Darwin Tunes 1.0. You're actually hearing Generation 8700, the very last generation of this first experiment. The Darwin Tunes game has inspired me to start a new segment on the podcast. It will chronicle the dramatic lives of Darwin Tunes loops. In true soap opera fashion, there will be a revolving cast that gets romantically entangled and makes babies together. So I hope you enjoy this new segment called All My Musical Children. When you start playing the Darwin Tunes mating game, you're presented with eight parent loops to choose from, created by other participants in the game. You then mate two of them together to create offspring. So here's a quick sample of what some of the parent loops sounded like in my first time playing the game. There were some very cool sounds in there, so it was a tough choice finding a pair. I ended up picking one from the user 2323, since it has a cool bass line. I also picked a really off-the-wall sounding one from the user Vuj, which has some strange vocalizations in it. After these two loops did their thing, here's what the eight children sounded like. Oh, my God.
I now had to choose which child to represent my family line. The other seven would be banished to the nether regions of the Darwin Tunes universe. I decided to go with the fifth child since it kept an interesting baseline, and it seemed to have an even cooler synth counterpoint part than either of the parents. It also kept some of the weird vocal sounds in there. Next week on All My Musical Children, who will fall in love with our young composer quest loop, and what will their musical babies sound like? Will we look for a mate that's noisy and exciting, or laid back and smooth? Also, there may just be a cameo from Darwin Tunes creator himself, Uncool Bob. Tune in next week for All My Musical Children. <laughs>